Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Nerdcast is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Engaging video lectures presented by top university professors on a variety of topics. It's the perfect way to learn for the pure pleasure of it. With The Great Courses Plus, you'll have unlimited access to a wealth of knowledge. Watch lectures from any device on your own schedule. Sign up today and get your first month free. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash nerdcast. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, August 11th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. Six. That's the number of swing states where the latest poll shows Hillary Clinton leading by double digits. 37. That's the number of public events Trump and Pence have held in swing states since the end of the conventions, and it's almost twice as many as Clinton and Kane. And 12, the number of days since the Trump campaign told a CNN reporter that it was looking into removing the blacklist. It still stands. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Hello, party people. Hadass Gold. Hello. Eli Stokos. Welcome back. Thank you. Scott Bland. Hello. And Charlie Matessian. Hi, Kristen. All right, we're going to do something new. Our first segment's going to be with Burgess Everett. He is an exceptional congressional reporter who has turned into a Veep reporter for Politico. He's on the trail covering Tim Kaine. Hi, Burgess. Hey, how are you? So tell us about your pool situation. Who's out there covering Tim Kaine? Well, clearly right now I'm I'm not with him. Um, (laughs) And and that's sort of a function of what I experienced last week. It was a very rigorous uh, travel schedule and, you know, not a ton of access, even though this is a guy who uh, I have covered in the Senate for years will often answer my questions until I run out of them. He's kind of known for this accessibility and sort of seeming like he's going off the cuff, but actually being a little more polished than you might expect. Uh, and, and you know, last week there were no gaggles with him. Um, the media interest is fairly low. It was the TV, the five major TV networks, a New York Times reporter, and for part of it, a Washington Post reporter, and then me. And, uh, you know, the value to me was sort of just to see how he's a little more buttoned up in this uh, environment. He's sort of soaking it all in. I feel like he sort of never really envisioned what this would actually be like compared to, you know, him sort of gallivanting around Northern Virginia two days before he was elected. How is that even possible? He's been on the list for months. I just feel like he never really envisioned having a dozen Secret Service agents around him, not really being able to go back and forth with reporters that he's known for a long time and and things like that. And so I'm not with him this week because uh, he's doing a lot of fundraising. And um, I I, I was surprised by, you know, how little the Clinton campaign really seems to uh, be pushing any distinct narratives about Tim Kaine. There were not a lot of 
here's 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 what he's doing and here's why you should be writing about it and here's the spin that that you should be taking it was you know we don't even have a press aide traveling with us with Kane uh, I assume that'll change eventually when there's more media interest in him but it's all about me coming up with ideas that are totally separate from what he is doing at any given time, which is glad handing with people at a soul food restaurant in Florida, touring a brewery in Milwaukee and not drinking any beer or pouring any beer, uh, that sort of a thing. Well, I don't mean to embarrass you by tooting your horn a little bit, uh, but that, speaking of ideas, you know, the story that you did with Matt Nussbaum about compare, uh, sort of a compare and contrast of Pence and Kane on the trail uh, was one that I loved. Uh, and it's what's really fascinating and, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about this, is the idea that they have completely uh, distinct roles right. uh, from each other. That on the one hand, you know, from from my perspective, what it looks like to me is one guy, Mike Pence, is out there extinguishing fires. Right. Uh, it's not really a traditional vice presidential role. And he also has this sort of added burden. He has to worry about 2020 and 2024 and his own political aspirations in a way that other vice presidential candidates didn't have to. They were always, they always had their eye on, eyes on the prize. They were always aspiring to the big show, you know, to get the big chair in the White House. But they weren't worried about the nominee destroying and blowing up their future chances. Uh, and that's his role. And then on the other hand, you've got Tim Kaine, who's playing the suburban dad, sort of the, 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 you know, adding a little warmth to the ticket and also raising money. Like, I don't think I understood that he the, the extent to which he is recognized as a powerful fundraiser. Right. And that sort of traces its lineage back to the, the DNC and his chairmanship there. But you're, you're totally right. that, And I think that makes a little more interest in Pence because he's a guy who's endorsing Paul Ryan uh, before Donald Trump is and, and sort of acting like, well, you know, of course, Donald Trump is good for uh, the military, no matter his fight with a gold star family, that sort of a thing. Whereas Kane is like, Donald Trump is bad for the economy. Hillary Clinton is good for the economy. Uh, and we're going to bring 10 million jobs in Donald Trump's. I mean, it's very traditional vice presidential role uh, to me. And, and Pence is, you know, sort of he's looking at the future for himself. He, he's young enough to run again for president or for the Senate seat in 2018 if Trump uh, doesn't win. And so he's handling all this stuff very differently because we're all watching the Trump campaign sort of uh, deal with negative news cycle after negative news cycle, self-induced harm, and, and Pence is sort of left to try to juggle all of this and, and make some sense out of it. So are you surprised by what it's like on the trail? I'm surprised by how exhausting and borderline impossible it is to be doing enterprise reporting while you are traveling with yeah. these people. I mean, it's all hurry up and wait. Uh, initially, I was trying to do my phone calls uh, in private because I'm, I'm used to guarding uh, my stories from people who are trying to take them away from me. That's the way it is on Capitol Hill. You know, I try to catch senators by themselves so that nobody else knows what I'm working on. Uh, this is a tactic I learned from Manu Raju, who used to be at Politico and sort of taught me how to guard journalism that you're doing so that it can hold a couple days for when you actually want to write it. And that's just impossible to do when you are on a van surrounded by seven other reporters, a secret service agent, and a driver. You have no no room to write, no room to type. Uh, so it, it's really sort of, you kind of have to jerry-rig everything together to make it work. You have to send more emails than you'd like to in terms in, instead of interviewing people in person or on the phone. And, you know, when, when an event is over and there's a congr con congressman or a senator on the stage and you're like, I, I know this person, I'm going to go try to talk to him. Nope, it's on to the next event. You're on a plane. You got no time. Even if there is a light day, I feel like you're not doing, you know, your service as a journalist, spending thousands of dollars to be with these people if you're not working really But hard. your day starts at what time, typically? You wake up, what time's your alarm go off? Six. 
go eat breakfast, read, try to find an hour to write, but maybe you're already on a plane. Uh, you know, we, we had times that we're leaving at 7.30 and there's really not, you know, you don't have a lot of time to do anything before that besides eat and get dressed. My brief time on the trail was, I, I, I could see why the being in the press pool vans would be really hard. But I mean, when when you don't have a press charter and reporters have to ferry themselves, that takes so much time out of reporting. Just like the driving and, and like the logistics, the logistics is just like, when I was on the trail a couple times, I was just struck by how quickly time passed and how you just did not have time to like sit down because writing and reporting takes time and it right. takes like mental capacity to just, you know, think things through. And when you're running around with a little food and little sleep and trying to traverse the cornfields of Iowa, it can be incredibly difficult. Um, do you, I mean, on a, on a pool van like that, do you still find yourself able to, you said you don't have time to do enterprise reporting, but do you still find you can at least write a little bit? I mean, if, you know, I did have my laptop out as we're, you know, bucking in a 15 passenger cargo <laughs> van or whatever, but like, it, it's totally not ideal. You know, you have your phone plugged into a hands-free device, you've got a recorder on your lap, you've got a notepad, you've got, I mean, it's just, it's more, it's just more chaotic, I right. guess, than I had envisioned. And like, you know, when you tell people, oh, I was on this private plane, I've never been on a private plane before, that's pretty sweet, but you don't really have any time to enjoy it if you're doing your job, in my opinion. <laughs> I don't feel bad for you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Burgess. Yeah, thanks for having and me. And get back to work, please. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what time are you filing? <laughs> All right, let's get to it. Data point number one is the number six. That's the number of swing states where the latest poll shows Hillary Clinton leading by double digits. What should we read into this, Scott? She's doing really well, uh, and she's constricting the map uh, for, for Trump. And I mean, look, like... Clinton is winning by margins at the national level that, you know, basically make electoral college math kind of unimportant, right? You know, if you're winning by that much, if you're winning by eight to 10 points nationally, you're going to win the election. But it just uh, shows how, you know, how, how Trump has, has boxed himself into a corner. I mean, you know, we've talked about Pennsylvania a lot on the podcast as a state where Republicans have, have you know, been doing better compared to the national average and been looking at as a state they want to try and pick off and bring into their coalition. He's just getting crushed there right now. I mean, you know, more so uh, than some of the other states that's really moved in Clinton's direction since the convention and it's stayed there. Steve Shepard is asking our caucus members tonight, actually, about uh, whether the electoral math game is kind of over at this point. Doesn't this seem a little bit premature? I almost never pay attention to the national polls. I always pay attention to the individual state polls because, you know, as we've talked about before, we don't really have a national election. We have an election because the electoral map is so hardwired because uh, two thirds of the states vote the same way in cycle after cycle. What we really have is a presidency that's determined by a small handful of battleground states. And so I pay attention to those 11 that we've identified. And what's really troubling, I think, for the Trump campaign is that he trails in all 11. And uh, here's the here's the really crazy thing about it and the really worrisome thing if you're a Republican. Uh, I plug these into the electoral map calculator. Hillary has double-digit leads in six of 11 states and has single-digit leads in five of them. Even if you give Trump every single state 
all five states where he only trails by single digits, he still can't win. And that is a real problem that he continues to trail by so much in all of the key states. I mean, there's not a single one where he's winning. So we are starting to read stories. In fact, we're starting to talk about stories in our own newsroom that look at August as the point at which the poll leader has historically been the leader um, walking into Election Day and then ultimately the winner. Do you, given the unorthodox nature of this campaign season that we've all just covered and lived through, do you think that kind of, uh, do you think that kind of historical holds? It's really hard to apply historical precedent to this election because we've seen so many times that you try to do it and it sort of blows up in your face. Uh, and yet, I think it is pretty solid. I mean, you look back at the last two presidential elections, McCain and Romney never trailed by this much at this time or at any time in the race since they became the official nominee. They never had this big of deficits to overcome. And of course, we know that they didn't win. Anyway, so the math is kind of cooked, right? This is, the pollsters are very confident that sort of the election is what it is. It's the same states. There's not a different map this year, and it's the same voters. And Scott is right that when it's a 10-point margin nationally, you're going to be losing every swing state if you're down 10 points nationally. That's just kind of how it is. And, and this is really what you know, never Trump Republicans warned about early on during the primary is, you know, this is a candidate with a limited appeal. And yes, he's winning our base in a very sort of wide open primary with a lot of candidates, but he is not going to have appeal um, to the sort of midsection of the American electorate that decides these elections. And that is what you're seeing. Was it a great Democratic convention in terms of the production and the messaging? That's part of it. Was it Trump compounding that and making it worse by having a really sort of reckless and undisciplined couple of weeks following that? Yes. But even so, you know, I mean, that I, I don't know. I mean, I think that would he have a, you know, a, would a more disciplined Trump be able to capitalize on, on all these negative stories? I mean, Hillary Clinton is, quote unquote, doing really well right now. And yet she's facing some difficult stories of her own. It's just they can't get media oxygen because Donald Trump has dominated coverage of this race with, you know, all the crazy things that he's done over the so last week. So let's talk about Evan McMullen and the other third party candidates and what kind of an impact they could have. I, mean, I, th I know that we've looked at some of the, the polling here, what polling that there is really about Gary Johnson in particular and who he's taking from. Is he taking from Trump? Is he taking from Clinton? Is there any effect that any of these candidates might have, Scott, on the, uh, on the, state, of the, on the state of play in this race? I think the the effect that Johnson might have in November can, like very much depends on him continuing to rise enough in the polls to maybe break into one of the debates. I think that's really the only way because we we see this time and time again at the state level and and at the national level too, where third party candidates, especially libertarians, bump up in the polls, uh, especially in the summer when attack ads are starting to fly and people are really unhappy, you know, talking about how they're unhappy with their choices and the libertarian bumps up and then their actual election day total never even comes close to oftentimes to half of what they were polling beforehand. When people actually get to the voting booth, they choose one of the major party candidates. If Johnson somehow managed to get that 15% he needs to uh, get into a debate, and I don't know how likely that is, but if he managed to do it, that kind of shifts things, right? Because all of a sudden he's up there, he's he's getting you know a a share of the attention at like the biggest media event of the election up to that point, and so so that could I, I could see that changing things, but I just don't know how likely it is. Charlie, what do you think? 
Scott's point is right on the money. Uh, everything comes down to the 15% polling threshold and whether Gary Johnson can make it. And that polling threshold is what will get him into the the debate or not. He was unable to get into the debates before. And in recent years, third party candidates haven't been able to get into the debates. Uh, as you know, Johnson was here about two months ago and Johnson made the same point and which was everything is contingent on whether I get into the debate for the American people right now. He's really, you know, it, it, he's not that close to it. And, uh, Scott made this point, and I think it's, it's worth repeating. What we see in the polls right now is not always indicative of how uh, a third-party candidate is going to perform in the fall. So, for example, if you take a look at Johnson in the polls in 2012, he was running pretty well in some states. He was uh, in double digits in some of the Mountain West states. Uh, but at the end of the day, he had, what, maybe 1% of the vote at the end of the election, and, and he was far behind what he was polling uh, during the uh, election season, late in the season. So, you know, we don't really know how people are going to respond. What we have learned through recent history is that uh, on election day, people sort of pull back and feel like it's going to be a wasted vote for a third party candidate in a presidential race. And so they end up going with the two uh, major parties. What I think we'll see this year is you may see a higher percentage for the third party candidates, whether it's Jill Stein or Gary Johnson or even maybe uh, Evan McMullen. And I think you'll probably see them in the places that are most comfortable voting for third party candidates because not every state is comfortable. Some states have a history of voting for third party candidates and independents. Other states, uh, I think, are more traditional minded. I think this cycle, it is really interesting because, you know, to a lot of people, Gary Johnson's more of a traditional Republican than Donald Trump is, right. even though he's running as a libertarian. So right. the more muddled this gets, you know, if he gets some exposure and people look at these candidates side by side, I think it's possible for him to do better than your average third party candidate does. I think in terms of the debate threshold, I think that's that's right. He needs that exposure uh, and that platform to be on stage with these other candidates. Um, I would just remind everyone at the table that Donald Trump at this point has yet to commit to doing those debates. And so well, we don't Giuliani even know. Giuliani was out there this morning we saying don't, that he But would. we don't even, I mean, we assume that he'll do some of that. He might do a cut. But like, we don't know. And so. He'll do the debates. You know, it's just a matter of do these things even, you know, in this in this election cycle, you know, nothing is really guaranteed. The thing I have, the thing that I wonder about is whether Hillary Clinton's team is going to look at their own internals and see some kind of drag from Johnson and start playing up this message in the fall, in September and October, like, do not waste your vote. Look at look at Great Britain. Look at Brexit. Don't protest vote. I actually think, on, on the flip side, I feel like what, what Charlie said about certain states being a little more comfortable voting third party, I think that actually has a little bit to do with uh, why the, the Clinton campaign and the Democratic super PACs have pulled back their advertising in Colorado right now. And why she's doing, in addition to Clinton being, being healthy there, I feel like, you know, in some of those Western states that Trump is going to lose a little bit more of that, uh, conservative vote to, to Johnson potentially. And I, I know for a fact, that's one of the arguments that Arizona Democrats have been making to the national party about why, uh, they deserve battleground state status, battleground state investment this year, because Arizona has a very strong tra tradition of libertarians running well there. And, uh, they think that, and when Bill Clinton carried the state in 1996, uh, Ross Perot ran very well there as a third party candidate. And they think that Johnson is going to do better than average in Arizona. And that's going to give them a little more room for uh, to maneuver and possibly carry Arizona. And that bit about Colorado is fascinating. Let's go to the next data point. It's the number 37. That's the number of public events Trump or Pence 
has held in swing states since the end of the conventions. It's almost twice as many as Clinton and Kane. Scott, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting. I've been keeping track of this since the, the day after the Democratic convention ended. And uh, yesterday was the first time I had actually just added up the numbers to, to look at them. And I, w- I was surprised at how many more uh, Trump and Pence have done. But it makes sense if you think about it, right? They're not on TV. Um, they're not really investing money in kind of a major field operation like we're used to seeing. But this fits into the whole, you know, the general Trump strategy of driving uh, free media attention. And he does it uh, he does it on national cable with each of these rallies, but it's also an opportunity to generate news in these local media markets in, like Charlie mentioned, in these battleground states, the ones that actually matter. And so uh, we see he and Pence, uh, Trump and Pence have been to Colorado five times in the last few weeks. Uh, they've been to Iowa three times. You know, they're, they're kind of going back and you can see a little bit, you know, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but you can almost see the campaigns uh, uh, shadowing each other to, you know, the same media market in the same state a few days after, you know, within a week. Uh, I think uh, Trump and Tim Kaine appeared in the same city uh, in, in Florida within like 24 hours of each other uh, a few weeks ago. We mentioned Arizona. Uh, Mike Pence made two stops in Arizona uh, right after the Democratic convention. I don't know the last time. I know for a fact in 2012 that neither Romney nor Obama nor their ticket mates made any stops in Arizona after the conventions. I don't know the last time a major party presidential candidate did that, but it's, again, a sign of you know the possibility that this extra state is coming online. What do you make of that, Charlie? I think the Trump campaign finally has shown an awareness of uh, the, uh, the politics of place in the presidential election, and I think they understand uh, the idea that there are some counties that matter more than others, there are states that matter more than others. And this was something that I think <laughs> this was a conclusion that they came to very late, way too late in the campaign. I mean, up until the convention, they were talking about, oh, you know, we're going to run the table in Oregon and Washington. We're going to be competitive in Massachusetts and New York and Maryland, which, you know, I think anyone who knows anything about politics knows how ludicrous so that was. And But now I think they're finally beginning to understand the, the battleground map and the battleground counties. So, that, so Donald Trump and Mike Pence are showing up in those kinds of places. But the, the question I still have, and, and I'm not somebody who dismisses his chances of winning. I mean, I think it's a powerful message in, in large parts of America. But where I think they run into the problem is even if he does stage a comeback, even if he does come roaring back and shows some message discipline and there's an October surprise and, and Hillary Clinton uh, craters for, for a time, they're not going to be in a position to capitalize, I think, because they simply don't have the infrastructure uh, in a close race. So if you were to have a a Gore-Bush type situation with a really tight race, Clinton's superior field organization is going to eke it out because they will be turning out everyone. They will squeeze every drop out of the sponge. Whereas the Trump campaign, even in the most competitive places in the country, literally has no infrastructure. In fact, there was a really interesting story in the Cincinnati papers yesterday about Hamilton County, which we recently identified in our story about the top 25 battleground counties, that there's no there's no Trump presence at all. You can't get stickers. You can't get signs. There's no office. Now, if you look back at Hamilton County in 2012, and this is it's not a secret. Everyone who follows politics on both sides understands how critical it is to determining the outcome in Ohio, Hamilton County, which is Cincinnati. In If you look at it in 2012, uh, Mitt Romney had uh, four offices there. Hmm. Uh, Barack Obama had nine offices in Cincinnati. Trump has nothing. There's no presence at all. It's not just the numbers either. It's it's the talent gap that Trump faces. I mean, we're busy reporting out a story right now about the 
difference in talent in the battlegrounds between the Clinton camp and the Trump camp. Eli. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's 100 percent right. I mean, I'm glad Charlie mentioned the Cincinnati story because I saw that yesterday and that was just sort of jaw dropping that in that county. They don't have an office yet, but it is sort of in, it fits with what you see in other states. I mean, last week I reported a small story about the fact that the Trump campaign just hired an experienced, more experienced operative to run things in North Carolina. Up until that point, they had an official campaign's chairman who wasn't really doing anything. And what I came to find out was that there was some kid from the RNC who was like 24 who was basically running everything for them in North Carolina. And running everything meant setting up events. There was nothing really happening when if the candidate one of the candidates wasn't there. Same thing in Colorado. You've got, you know, a very professional staff on the Hillary Clinton side, and you've got kind of a low-level, mid-level B-team Republican operative running things for Trump, who was just hired within the last couple of weeks, whereas the Clinton people had a team in place for months. And it's sort of, that's the case in every one of these states. And so you just sort of see the limitations of Trump's approach. You know, last week at a rally, he's sort of riffing on stage and he's talking, loves to talk about the polls. And he's obviously hasn't, hasn't had a lot of great polls to talk about lately. And he said, I don't really understand. You know, like I get all these people to come to these rallies. We must be doing better than the polls. These polls must be wrong. And it just, you know, reveals this stunning kind of misunderstanding of how politics works. Yes, you can get 10,000 people to show up at a rally if you give them enough time. And Donald Trump doesn't need a whole lot of advance notices. People are pretty, you know, supportive they're going to come out. But 10,000 people in Virginia doesn't amount to a damn thing in this in the context of the larger statewide electorate. So Donald Trump doesn't know this. Ivanka Trump doesn't know this. Jared doesn't know this. But Paul Manafort knows this. What is happening inside this campaign that Paul Manafort and the actual professionals who are running it or supposedly running it are not able to steer this man in a direction that would allow him to stand up a campaign with a chance of winning. You know how Paul Manafort last week said, you know, this is Mr. Trump's campaign. I just do the things that Mr. Trump asked me to do to the best of my ability. I mean, he's right. I think by saying, like, why isn't Paul Manafort fixing this? I mean, is sort of giving Paul Manafort the power that no one really has, which is to be able to take Donald Trump and transform him as a candidate into something that is more broadly appealing. Donald Trump's appeal is limited to Donald Trump's supporters, the people who got him through the primary. And, you know, he said this morning on television, I'm not going to change, right? I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And if I have to take a vacation at the end of this, so be it. I mean, that's a stunning recognition for a guy who just is nothing but bluster and bombast and I'm going to win, win, win. That's a sort of, you know, Donald Trump is coming to grips with the fact that he may not win. And I don't think that Paul Manafort or Jason Miller or any of the people in Trump Tower can really change who Donald Trump is and change the, the sort of broad outlines of the message that he's put forward. It, it wouldn't be authentic. And it's just that's why that, you know, there's no pivot. There's no I mean, they can go wherever they want to go in these different states, but it's going to be the same message. It's just they're sort of boxed in at this point. I don't know that it's really anything Manafort can change. You know, it seems to me like this is just another example of missed opportunity. There is no question that the support for Donald Trump around the country is there. I mean, I was just in New Jersey, of all places, where the Trump stickers were on, you know, every car and people walking around with Trump T-shirts on and Trump hats on down the shore. And, 
in people's front yards. They have the Trump signs. There is a, a growing support for the Republican nominee in pockets of the country that traditionally would not be for him. And yet, the campaign does not seem to understand that they have to do something to mobilize that support and turn it into votes. But, but the question we didn't even get to is, is Manafort even qualified to run a national campaign? He is, he's not an operative who's been running campaigns. He is a guy who hasn't been involved in the campaign game. I'm talking about sleeves rolled up since the Dole campaign. Now, he is a guy who's been a lobbyist for many, many years. I mean, and and it's uh, emblematic of the Trump's campaign's effort to just wing it. And they forget that this is a billion-dollar business. This is the leadership of the free world. You can't wing it and go see to the pants. (laughs) I mean, think about what's happened since Manafort was last involved in politics. The internet. American politics. American <laughs> politics. Like, American <laughs> politics has, have, has made quantum leaps since he was last involved in politics, but there's no recognition of that. Like, why would Manafort know any of this? I'll tell you one thing that, that could have a lot of similarity to the last time that, that Paul Manafort ran a national American political campaign. In 1996, uh, in, in September, early October, you saw the Republican Party take a really hard turn toward trying to protect House and Senate races. And they were running on a message of, you know, send me to Congress to be a check and balance on President Bill Clinton, essentially seeding the idea that uh, that he was going to win re-election. And, you know, we, we could well be on our way to seeing that again. We did. We actually did see a little bit of it in 2012 in some House races in New York and a few other kind of blue states where Republicans were trying to win territory that Obama was going to carry. But we could see it on a much wider scale, especially with those Senate races this year. And we're going to take a short break for a sponsor. Nerdcast listeners are continual learners. That's why you need to sign up for The Great Courses Plus. With a wide variety of subjects, including history, politics, business, and more, The Great Courses Plus video learning service is now offering listeners to this podcast an opportunity to stream over 7,000 fascinating video lectures presented by award-winning professors and experts in their fields. You'll get a free month of unlimited access to watch courses like Fundamentals of Photography and many more. Start your free month now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash nerdcast. That's one month free when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash nerdcast. Let's talk about our next data point. It's the number 12. That's the number of days since Jason Miller told a CNN reporter that the campaign was looking into removing the media blacklist. Eli, are you still blacklisted? You know it. I do know it. So is our photographer. Well, all Politico reporters are blacklisted. I bet even if I tried to get into an event, we would find Politico editors are blacklisted, too. How is it affecting your ability to cover this campaign, Eli? Um, You know, I would say the blacklist itself is not really is the least um, of the impediments or challenges in covering Donald Trump's campaign, because not only in this media day and age is everything live streamed, but, you know, you talk to reporters who are on the plane um, in the in the bubble, so to speak, and they don't get much access to Donald Trump's senior staffers, to anybody other than a 22 year old staffer who's you know basically a chaperone of the reporters who are on the plane. Uh, so it's really not like it was covering you know campaigns four years ago, or like it is for the Hillary Clinton press pool. That, that much more traditional, and this is just not a traditional campaign. So the blacklist itself is really not that 
prohibitive in terms of having coverage. I mean, the, just the sort of dysfunction of the campaign, the sort of haphazard nature of it, um, the internal turmoil constantly at Trump Tower is fodder for stories. But you just have to sort of wire into that in a different way. Yeah, it doesn't prevent you from talking to people. It's it's not, the blacklist is it's almost feels like it's more for show than for anything else because despite the fact that the Washington Post is still technically blacklisted, he's talked to Trump himself has granted two interviews to Washington Post reporters since he publicly called for them to be blacklisted. And what is the real media story here? I mean, the media and Trump is is a story of the entire 2016 campaign, and Trump is constantly saying the media is unfair to him. Trump is constantly saying that the things that we are reporting and writing are lies, which they are not. Hadass, when you look at this campaign as the media reporter, what is the story that you're telling? It's like the existential crisis of the uh, quote-unquote objective media because, you know, we're we're trying to report on what's being said. The New Yorker today had like a funny like mock column by Borowitz, uh, which was like, Trump gets mad at the media for reporting what he says. And that's what a lot of this feels like. And we're trying, you know, media tries to be objective. But when you have a candidate who um, will flip flop positions or just outright lie within a two minute span, it starts to feel a little or he starts and people start to complain that, you know, it's it's one sided, it's anti Trump. Um, I think I've seen the quote before that, you know, journalists are are pro-fact. And when you have a candidate who seems to be a little bit um, fudging of the facts, that can come off just innately as as anti that candidate. But it, it's really been kind of a, I, I've seen a lot of reporters be, have a hard time or, you know, express privately that th- they want to be objective reporters, but it's kind of hard to be, to, to do that when you have such an unusual candidate who doesn't operate under seemingly normal, uh, you know, circumstances. It's interesting. I would actually challenge that entire idea that um, you have to wor- put the word but in the middle of that sentence. You know, you can, it is being objective to cover a candidate who is not telling the truth and to say that the candidate is not telling the truth. I don't know that this campaign has challenged um, at least our ability, our ability inside um, Politico HQ here to objectively report on this campaign. Do you disagree with that, Charlie? I think that what it, what we're seeing is um, the challenge of covering candidates in what I can only call a, the, the post-factual environment. Um, we, he, Trump has very successfully exploited all the weaknesses of, of the modern digital and, and print media. And what, you know, we've, we've seen a little bit of this in previous cycles. Like, for example, Michelle Bachman, I thought was a real uh, vibrant example of this, where, you know, if you took a look at her PolitiFact ratings in 2012, you know, it was just sort of wildly out there and no one called her on it. And we're seeing more and more candidates do that. And Trump just is has taken it to another level. And I think what you're seeing is we're, we're really scrambling to figure out how to handle that. I would say, though, I think for the most part, the media has done a pretty good job uh, of, of covering him and holding him accountable to many of this. Uh, to, to to many of the you know less than factual accounts or or blatant lies, but one area where I do think they are correct over at Trump Tower uh, is that through Twitter, which is really the main uh, megaphone of the media and the way the media speaks to the world and also to itself, uh, you you see a lot of uh, I see a lot of tweets from people who you know often make me kind of raise my eyebrows like wait a minute no wonder many of the Trump supporters and the Trump campaign itself feels that the da- the the 
deck is stacked against them. I mean, they, this is going way beyond objectivity on Twitter. And I don't think yep. that Twitter is really any different than any other platform these days. I completely agree the with Romney you. The Romney campaign had the same camp complaints about the press corps four years ago and then the things that were, you know, being sort of shot around on Twitter. But, you know, with Trump, it is different. I mean, it, it, the, to... To be that careless as he is with facts, okay, and then to come out and say the media is so dishonest for reporting the words that he is saying. I mean, that is Orwellian uh, to the core. And, you know, it, it creates this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, you sit here and he's all, so careless with facts and with his words generally. We saw that the other day when he's just sort of casually hinting at, you know, violence might be our last resort, the last way to stop Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Supreme Court. I mean, when you say things like that that are reckless and dangerous beyond the political implications of is he stepping on his message you know, journalists point that out. And then, you know, it sort of creates this self-fulfilling prophecy where he's constantly doing these offensive, crazy, reckless things and ensuring that the information flow coming from the media about him is more and more negative. And so, you know, when something like that happens, you sit there and you watch that rally and you say, how do we write that? Was he joking? Um, is, he's obviously appealing to his supporters. Is he serious about violence? And you have to kind of point out that this is not something a presidential candidate this is a, a, another line that he is crossing. He's leaving some, you know, gray area in whether or not, as a presidential candidate, he is actually encouraging a political assassination. He's going to say, "Oh, that's not what I was doing." But if there's any question, right, that most people would think, I think the responsibility onus is on the candidate to make sure there is no question that you are not doing that. And so you sit here, and 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 as the as a reporter covering this, you don't want to overreact. You don't want to lean into your analysis to the point where you're just sort of playing into his caricature of the media as totally unfair and totally totally against Trump and taking everything he says out of context or, or, or overreacting to it. And yet there, you know, it is important to point out that you are saying these things in a country that has been beset by by gun violence. You are, I mean, there are consequences. He has a huge platform. And to say, to stand on that platform and say these things is a sort of stunning thing that I think bears notice sure, beyond just saying, oh, he stepped on his for message a second. again. Turn the, turn the spotlight back on us. I want to go back to something that Charlie said, because I think he's exactly right about Twitter. The number of times I look at reporters' tweets and think, my God, if that had been in a story, I would have killed it immediately um, is, is high. It, it, that, that the number is too high. And I wonder if this is not a generational thing. I mean, I'm looking at Hadass, not that you have some tweets I'm worried about, but do you think that Twitter is the same as a publication platform, as a story that comes think, through my keyboard? I think it's become so. And I think that any reporter who doesn't think that what they post on Twitter should be... Um, put at the same scrutiny than perhaps what they post in their stories is wrong because we we take things that politicians say from Twitter That's all the right. time as their quotes, as fact. You know, I, I've seen a lot recently, um, and this is more from some like media reporters, where they'll post things on Twitter like, I hear quote unquote, you know, I hear such and such happen and I'm looking at them with like eyes open me like, are you kidding me? Unless you like, unless you have that co corroborated and it's not just some rumor you hear floating around or you don't preface it with like rumors I hear something like that, you shouldn't be posting it on Twitter because then people take that tweet, post it in their own blog post or in their own story being like such and such reporter said 
X, Y, Z, and it's taken as fact. And and it hasn't been vetted by an, an editor. You right? don't know how many sources they have. You don't know if these sources have direct knowledge. So all of the rules that apply to a story are not applying on Twitter. And but they that's should. the danger. But they should. You know, honestly, I think that this is a bit, I mean, we can blame Donald Trump as much as we want for exploiting the environment, but the environment was created by us. I mean, over the course of 10 years, I'd say, right, we have gone from a place where reporting, where an analysis was reserved to one column on the front of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And that was an analysis based on reporting, based on sources. It was not an opinion. That went through fact checks. That went through (laughs) fact checks, right? And what has happened over the course of the last decade is we have increasingly come to a place where the digital media companies have taken that format decided they're not as well-sourced to produce them, and turned analysis into an opinion, only further pushing the idea or, or validating the idea that anybody's opinions matter. Like, you could ask me, what's your opinion on Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? And I'll tell you that I have one, but my opinion doesn't matter. And, like, that's the thing that's been lost in journalism. Yeah, I saw there was a reporter's um, bio the other day. I saw, I won't name the website, but it said politics reporter and occasional opinion columnist. And I was like, like, excuse me. But I I mentioned it to somebody. They're like, meh. Like, and I was like, no, like a reporter shouldn't be an opinion columnist at the same time. That just like, I don't know, it just struck. It's like makes me think of like a doctor also being, I don't know, like a drug dealer, MMA fighter. But we're in an era where, you know, media has been so fragmented and not just fragmented in terms of the, you know, uh, all the outlets that are like Politico, there are new sort of media outlets that are out there competing for links and clicks and and eyeballs. Um, But, you know, the sort of polarization of political media and, and people in this country sort of trusting sources that align with their point of view and, and news outlets catering to one side of the spectrum or another. That's been, t- we're 20 years into that experiment. We're seeing the consequences of it every day. And so in a competitive environment like this, um, you can pretty much, I mean, you can pick the way you want to do journalism, right? From, from being a reporter who, who sort of takes spoon-fed handouts from a campaign, a campaign that's very, um, you know, adversarial to anybody who doesn't want to take their spoon-fed handouts. There's a place for reporters to come in and cover Donald Trump and sort of cozy up to the campaign and be one of a couple of trusted sources to regurgitate whatever the campaign wants to put out there. There are choices you make as journalists. There are choices you make as candidates in terms of where you go, whether you allow access. And and there are choices people make as readers and viewers and to get their, their their news from someone they trust. And 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 trust is all in the it's very subjective, right? It's some people trust an outlet like the New York Times and the Washington Post because these are venerated sort of trusted journalistic uh, organizations. And other people trust, you know, Fox News or MSNBC or Daily Coast or whatever it is because of the slant and the the sort of prism that they view all of the day's news through and that aligns with them. And so it's just, we're in this fragmented, crazy place where, you know, whatever you see, that's your reality. There are a million different realities. I think in a lot of ways, it's a perfect storm uh, because in our business, we are having this vigorous internal debate about thresholds and barriers to publishing, uh, answering all kinds of questions that we never really had to grapple with in the past because the walls were to publishing were so high. And this is happening at the same time that we've got a powerful candidate who has broken every rule and who does not recognize any of the limits or constraints that operated. He doesn't recognize any of the norms uh, and the framework that other candidates uh, use in the past. 
past. And that's why, uh, for example, I don't think the Romney analogy applies here because the, the, the Romney campaign operated within a traditional framework, even if they felt the media was biased. That's something traditional that all Republican campaigns have felt, uh, and I think with, with some reason in the past, but they still operated under a shared framework with the media. Yeah, Katie Packer, who ran that campaign, said to me, we never even thought, as pissed off as we got at a lot of reporters, we never even contemplated banning organizations or outlets. Right. And I think one thing that um, a lot of critics say, and especially um, pro-Trump people or, or Republicans, they say that all of this insanity around Trump, we kind of aren't paying as much attention to Hillary Clinton. I think that's some of where the objectivity criticism comes from. They're saying, hey, wait, guys, like, don't forget you have another candidate who herself has had some issues with maybe saying the entire truth all the time. Um, and that just gets completely buried. It gets covered. For sure it gets covered. But it gets buried and just, you know, when you have there was a quote today in this Time Magazine profile where it says, when you have a candidate who is like setting the house on fire, um, you know, waterboarding a puppy before noon, you know, that's, it's it's like, what, what are you going to do? But Donald Trump's a media phenomenon we've seen for, the, he has been since he started, and that, right, giveth and taketh away. Donald Trump rode $2 billion of free media to the Republican nomination. He suffocated every other Republican candidate who couldn't get on television. And that was great for him. And now he's in a general election where his message, right, the people who he needs, that message is not aligned with the general elect election electorate. It was aligned with the Republican primary base electorate. We saw that. But now the amplification of that is not helping him. And his dominance of the media spotlight is hampering his campaign at a time when, you know, the best thing for him to do might be to, you know, go back to Turnberry, play about 72 <laughs> holes of golf, and let Hillary Clinton dominate the news cycle because and get asked these questions or not get asked these questions because she never does a press conference about pay to play at the you know at the State Department or whatever it is because there's a lot of stories out there that would be bad for her if there was enough media oxygen you know if Donald Trump wasn't out there basically saying Barack Obama founded ISIS let's you know Second Amendment people unite I mean if he wasn't saying these things maybe the media, but that's it's been that way, you know, from the get go. With what Donald she's Trump. doing is exactly what you're saying. Donald Trump should be doing. She's just like chilling, just you know, letting him. She's, she's not being chilling, boring. but yeah, she's she's letting him. She's to you know take all the media oxygen away. She's not doing as many press conferences, and in fact, something that uh, we'll be writing about hopefully very soon is also the fact that they, neither candidate has a protective press pool yet. Now, while Hillary Clinton has done a much more typical pool reports, you know, where a reporter will send out an email to the other reporter saying, hey, this is what happened today. And there have been um, hundreds of them at this point. They're still not the traditional protective press pool, which is similar to what the president has, which means that the can that the a, a core group of reporters will fly with the candidate on their plane with the staff. And that's where you get a lot of that access that Eli, Eli was complaining that, you know, the Trump reporters don't get. Um, and neither of them have that. And I think that because Trump doesn't have it, you know, Clinton, the Clinton team is just kind of taking their sweet time. They've said that it's going to happen in August, right? But, you know, last time in, in all the previous cycles, this happened way before, weeks before. You, even like Mitt Romney, he had his protective press pool, you're pretty sure, like before the uh, conventions. And neither of them have that now, which means that, we're, that the reports aren't getting as much access. They're not getting as much, you know, face-to-face -face reporting, face-to-face -face time with these candidates, other than in these like pre-planned, pre-screened environments. Uh, and, you know, honestly, Clint the Clinton campaign is kind of getting away with not with taking their time and doing this because the Trump campaign isn't doing it.
I don't know if anybody challenges that, but. I don't know. I, it, it saves me a lot of money, <laughs> right? Like Charlie and I aren't spending money sending you guys on planes. Um, I've always been a believer that those pools are a waste of your time, that you don't get anything out of it. Um, and I hate sending people on it because I think you break news outside of the bubble, not inside of the bubble. And like that's the one thing the blacklist has really shown us. You can blacklist what? us. And Sean Spicer can keep Alex Eisenstadt and Shane Goldmacher out of RNC events. We're still going to be breaking news right over his head. Um, I heard he had a off the record with a bunch of reporters last night and was whining about the story that Daniel Lippman had this week about all the staffers defecting. So... Uh, proof positive that they don't have to let us in the building for us still to be in their heads. But here's what's really scary, though. Think about the, the repercussions of this election. I mean, it's not going to be over uh, after on November 10th after the election. What, Whichever the next administration is, whether it's a Trump administration or a Clinton administration, it is going to be profoundly hostile and suspicious to the media in a way that most people haven't seen in, many voters have not seen in their lifetimes and probably in my entire career. Because if you just track back all of the, the presidencies, there was, no, whether it's Obama, George W. Bush, or even the first Clinton administration, or even H.W. Bush, they were not as hostile and suspicious uh, to the media uh, because they had very different experiences as either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Last word, Hadass. And I think that's what's really important about this press, about the, the protective press pools. I understand, you know, the whole, you don't break news there, but I think it's really important in terms of just the the presence of the media, that respect that the campaigns and these politicians have for the media, where they recognize that you need, even if, you know, right, it doesn't get any value, whatever, it still means, like, we respect the media and the institution of the media enough that we understand they should be biased, and it holds them accountable, and the fact that they don't have somebody, I mean, even just the presence of all these press people surrounding you at all times is different and what that means is that when like charlie was saying whoever gets to the white house next nothing is keeping them from not holding daily press conferences from not allowing reporters into the white house because that was all established decades ago nowhere in a law does it say you have to have daily press briefings nowhere in a law to say you have to allow the media onto the white house grounds and there are things that happen at the white house everything from watching who walks in that we might not get access to if this type of relationship continues you are exactly right. All right, that's it for us. Thank you, Hadas. Bye. Eli. Thank you. Scott. See ya. And Charlie. Thanks, Kristen. And thank you to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy. Woohoo! We love doing this podcast, and we really love hearing from you. So please keep the emails coming to nerdcast at politico.com and go to your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Thank you.